And you know what, David? We're going to have to work off the back computer there. I didn't plug mine in properly. My mistake. Small town, new family, first Sunday in town, the young son goes to church. And uh, he's there a little bit early, and the pastor of this small church notices the young boy, realizes he's never seen before, and so he walks up and introduces himself and, and interacts with him a little bit. And uh, he says, well, okay, so you're in a new town and everything. How's it going? And the little boy said, well, not that good, really. I really didn't even want to be here today. I wanted to go fishing. And pastor said, well, so why did you come to church? My dad said I had to. And so the pastor is pretty impressed with the dad there. He said, so did your dad kind of tell you why you might should go to church on Sunday and not go fishing? And the kid said, nah. All my dad said was he didn't have enough bait for both of us. Today, we, uh, <laughs> we'll look at the second week of a two-week mini-series on Christmas with the emphasis that Christians should make Christ the core of our celebration of Christmas. That's the overall theme. Last week, advance the slide there, Dave. Are you, is it working? There we go. Yeah. Last week, we, we looked at the history of Christmas, and today... Next slide, we're going to look at the theology of Christmas. Don't let that throw you. Just we're going to think um, systematically about exactly what Jesus was doing uh, before, during, and after Christmas. And so we're going to emphasize this theme today. Next slide, please. Jesus Christ. I used to say Jesus Christ is the unique person of all history, but history is just referring to human written records. Non-written records, that's archaeology. That's artifacts. And he's bigger than that. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is the unique person of all reality because he's the God-man Savior, he's the active agent of human salvation, and he is the exclusive issue and the exclusive issuer. Buddha can't do this for you, uh, Dr. Buchanan, and neither can Muhammad. Jesus is the exclusive issue and the exclusive issuer of everlasting life, even the little boys that trust him for it. But before we dive into the theology of Christmas from John 1, let's uh, pray for those who protect and serve us. Uh, I've told this story many times, but right after 9-11, a lot of churches had some concerted prayer for our military. And we did that for several weeks, and then we kind of stopped. And Bob Shalat, who's sitting on the second row, World War II hero, walked up to me and said, we've been praying for the military the last couple of weeks, right? Why didn't we do it today? That's before Joe went off and served, and other people have gone off and served. So we do that. We know all those people personally. Joe, you recognize that good-looking soldier up there? Yeah. That was a a few years ago. But uh, let's pray for our military and also for, uh, next slide, our peace officers and also for our firefighters. And one more slide, including the local guys and gals that do that for us. So we'll pray for them, and we'll pray that we'll be teachable to God's Word. And I wonder if uh, Dr. Buchanan, would you lead us an opening prayer in that direction? Now, we're about to do 45 minutes of hardcore Bible exposition, so we need to make sure your capacity for abstract thought is fully warmed up. So this is a abstract thought warmer-upper. Number one, Christmas-related. What is a lion's favorite Christmas song? That would be Jungle Bells. 
They're corny. They force you to think. Next, please. We're going to go through all these whether you want to or not. What are you going to do now? Fire me? No. I'm... This may be a good message here, folks. What are Santa's top three assistants called? Subordinate clauses. Yes. Next. Maybe we shouldn't do all these, David. No, let's do it. Santa Claus won't be coming down chimneys this year because it's been outlawed as too dangerous by the Elf and Safety Commission. The Elf. Next. <laughs> Why are broken drums some of the best Christmas presents, Jonathan? You can't beat them. And I think this is the last one. Hold your applause. I can't believe I didn't plug my computer in the day. I can run, let it run down. You know you're ready to retire when you don't plug your computer in and you forget to lower the screen after you baptize people. So, uh, I try so hard. Anyone who thinks men are superior to women has never seen a man try to wrap a Christmas present. It, the truth, the truth hurts people, but the truth transforms, my friends. Next slide. Uh, before I forget, attached to your notes, there's a list of six arguments you may hear against the celebration of Christmas. And if you, as a sincere believer, want to hammer out stricter con- convictions in Scripture and don't want to have a Christmas tree and don't want to celebrate Christmas and don't want to talk about Santa Claus, that's fine by me. But beware of hammering out sh- within the bounds of morals and doctrines stricter scruples than Scripture and then using that as a litmus test to criticize, judge, or to sequester yourself from everybody else. So uh, I'm kind of a moderate. I don't worship Santa Claus, but I don't think believing in Santa Claus for a couple of years as a kid did me a whole lot of harm. And I, I, we didn't push it on Jamie and Jonathan. They just kind of went along for the ride. And by the time Jamie was about four and a half, he figured it out. And I said, don't tell Jonathan yet, you know. And they turned out pretty good. So that's just that's just for what it's worth. I won't take the time to read that to you today, but no extra charge, no extra charge for that. Okay, last week we talked about the one, two, three in regard to the history of Christmas. Next slide, we talked about the real, real meaning. Some people said the real meaning is of Christmas is peace on earth or be nice to your friends or Christmas is for the children or it's better to give than to, than to receive. And all those things are true, but that's not really, Dana, the core meaning of Christmas. The core, the real, real meaning of Christmas is the babe in that manger was and is the God-man Savior. That's the real meaning. All those other stuff things may spin off of that. But don't let anybody take that away from you. That's one real, real meaning. Number two, we talked about the two biblical passages on Christmas. In this order, Luke talks about the night of the birth. Matthew talks about sometime after the birth, probably as much as a year, maybe even 18 months later, as makes clear as you correlate those passages. So the, uh, the Babylonian big shots, we call them the wise men. How many wise men were there? We don't know. Scripture, Steve knows this. We know there were two or more, because it's plural, but we know they brought gold, frankincense, and more. They, they brought three kinds of gifts, okay, Glenna, but that doesn't mean there were just three of them. There might have been two, there might have been 22. These were Babylonian astrono- astronomers, not astrologers. Pagan astrologers had no reason to take a 600-mile trip across the desert to find a Jewish baby in a cattle trough, okay? They were coming because they... Got the Old Testament scriptures from the Babylonian captivity. They're believing in the promises of the Messiah, and they believe he's laying in that cattle trough. But that happens long after the shepherds have left. So we talked about the two biblical passages, and then last week in the 
history of Christmas, we talked about three important titles or names. Next slide. That directly relate to what Christmas is all about. Jesus, Yeshua, is a word that means God's Savior. It's his human name, and so it emphasizes his humanity, but it means, guess what it means, Joe? It means God's Savior. So he's humanity, but he's also a human, and he's the Savior. The word kurios goes right back to the most important word for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh. It's the salvation name of God. And so by calling him the Lord in that sense, you're affirming his deity. And then Christ goes back to the Old Testament, uh, Mashiach, which means the anointed one, the one God had, the Father had decided would be the active agent of Anthony Foreman's salvation, and more importantly, of Brad McCoy's salvation. So you look at his name and his major, major titles, you can't miss the fact he's the God-man Savior. That's last week. Today we're going to look at the theology of Christmas from John 1, 1 through 18. Next slide. And uh, verse 14 is the capstone. The word, which in that context is a title for Jesus, the word, Jesus, became flesh, took on humanity, Andrew, without ceasing to be deity. How do you do that? I have no idea. Can I do that in a laboratory? You sure can't. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible I can't re- reproduce in a laboratory, but it really happened. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and John says, we beheld his glory, not just at the transfiguration, which Peter, James, and John did, but his entire righteous experience as a ministry, uh, Messiah and his death, resurrection, and ascension. So that's what we're going to focus on today. Next slide. But let's put this in context. We're going to end up with the emphasis that Jesus is the unique person of all reality. But let's go to the next slide there. Let's put this in biblical context. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of John, which was written in the New Testament, right? Part of the New Testament. You know, the Bible's a big book, but it only has how many parts? First part of the Bible, Gene, is called the Old Testament, or the Tanakh, the Jews call it. And those are the books written before the coming of the Messiah. That And it kind of talks about spirituality and training wheels, and it's kind of preparing humanity for the coming of the Messiah. And you get increasingly specific predictions about who this Messiah is going to be. So the Old Testament is partial, preliminary, and pointing to someone. And who's the Old Testament pointing to, Stephanie? The Messiah, the Christ, right? So that's the Old Testament. They're all written before the first coming of Christ. New Testament books are written in the generation of the coming of Christ. And if the Old Testament has one major premise, which is what? Everybody sins, everybody dies. And yet God has a plan. He's going to bring the Lamb into play to take care of that issue. The New Testament looks back at that and has one major premise. And Brian, you know what the New Testament's major premise is? Jesus of Nazareth is the one the Old Testament said would come as the Lamb and eventually as the Lion. And he's coming back. So look busy, right? Is that what they used to say, right? So are we in the Old Testament or New Testament in the Gospel of John? We're in the New Testament, right? Let's look at the Gospel of John synthetically. Next slide. Gospel of John, the key hangs at the back door. Most of the biblical books have a key statement somewhere that tells you what they're trying to do. Beginning, middle, and an end. John has it at the end. And it says something like this. Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which aren't written in this book. So guess what, David? He's not trying to tell you everything he knows about Jesus. He's telling you just specific things for a purpose. Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, not written in this book. But these are written that you might what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Is that really that important? Yeah, that's the gospel. The Christ who died for our sins and rose again. And that believing you have life in his name. You know how many times the Gospel of John says you've got to believe, and believing in Christ is the terms of salvation? Let's do, let's do uh, since, since I can't get fired, let's do like Bob Barker 
and Price is right. Guess guess a number, but don't go over. What do you think, Jamie? You probably yeah, you probably heard me say this. Uh, what do you think, Alonda? How many times does the word believe occur in John? It's somewhere between five thousand and fifty-seven and two. <laughs> Three hundred lower. Well, you can, I, okay, David. What do you think? Guess, David Bearden. Say two hundred. Okay, I was two hundred. Ken, what do you think? That's pretty close. What do you think, Gina? Less than 129. Less than. Mm. Try again. Lower. Lower than 117. That's getting closer. What do you think, Connie? Lower than 99. Ooh, so close. A little higher. Add one to 89, Bo, and give it a shot. Ninety times the Gospel of John says the terms of receiving eternal life is believing in Christ. You know why that's the terms? Faith is an active, uh, rational thing, but it's not meritorious. Jesus has to do all the work for Michael Burt to be saved by believing in the Messiah. Because, you know, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. For by grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, gift of God, not of works. Okay, so look at this. Go to the next slide. So that's the key of the book, and the body of the book looks like that. But this gospel has a very cool, organized intro and outro. And we're going to look at the intro, the prologue, the fancy word for that. And it turns out, Gina, that this prologue, which almost everybody who reads it carefully will say, this is a work of art. Even Bultmann thought it was incredible. He didn't believe any of what it said, but he thought it was incredible, this German scholar. Uh, it has a particular kind of organization of thought which we're going to apply to help us quickly go through it and really get to the heart of the matter here. Look at the next slide here. It turns out that John organizes those 18 verses like a staircase moving up to the main thing and then back away from it in a symmetrical way. What does that mean? Next slide. That means the first subunit of these 18 verses and the very last one are talking about the same thing. They're parallel. And the second thing, and the second to the last, and the third thing, and the third to the last, and the fourth thing in this unit, and the fourth to the last, talking about John the Baptist. And then the fifth one, and the fifth one line up, and then the keys in the middle. It's called a chiasm, because what looks like an X in English is the Greek letter for CH, it's the first letter in Christos, and it's kind of like these things cross at the middle, boom, and focus on that. So we're going to read this by reading verses 1 and 2 and then immediately comparing that to verse 18 and look at verse 3 and go to verse 17 and build toward and away from that centerpiece. And it, it'll, that's why I'm going to read it in that way and talk about it in that way. Next slide, please. So this is, go back to the, to the staircase again. So this is kind of the way it breaks down. Go to the slide, you just, the fourth slide. Yeah, this is, I think is an easier way for us to look at it, right? You're working toward and away from a center. And that's the way he organizes his thought. But you might say, go back to the, go backward one. That looks like kind of like a staircase, right? Say yes, just humor me, okay? That looks like a staircase, right? Say yes, Pastor Brad. Next slide. I can read that, but that didn't look like a staircase. Let's make it look like a staircase. Next slide. No, the other way. But see, you can't read that. So I can't show it like that. So uh, go forward one, David. So let's do it like that, but emphasize he's working to and away from the center component. And we'll keep that in mind as we work through this. And I'm going to work off my paraphrase. 
just for lack of time, I think it's attached it's attached to your notes there. Isn't it? It's like the second page, right? Yeah. I'm going to work off of this just so we can, can kind of compare those passages and get a lot of bang for the buck the next 30 minutes or so. Okay? So notice, at the very top you've got verses 1 and 2, which is talking about Jesus with the title of the word, Halagos, and his relationship with God the Father. And then we're going to drop down to verse 18. Why are we going to drop it down to verse 18, Michael, after we look at verses 1 and 2? Because they line up. See? So let's do that. Look at verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, and in most of the English translations, this is very good. In the beginning was the Word. You know what that means? In the beginning, this is claiming something that will blow your categories. This is saying Jesus is transcendent. He transcends time, space, matter, and energy. In the beginning, the Word already was. Whenever the physical universe came into being, Jesus pre-existed that. That's where this gospel starts. It's emphasizing his deity. In the beginning, Jesus, and we're going to call him Halagos here, the title, the word, already was, and he was with God the Father. He's a separate person than God the Father, but he was with God the Father. Sometimes you hear preachers say, well, you know, God was kind of lonely, and he just had to have Londa and Carol and Ron and, and, and Dr. Buchanan in this world so he could have somebody to love. Now, that sounds very sentimental and nice, but it's not true. God's not dependent on us. God doesn't need Brad McCoy. TPF will be fine without Brad McCoy, okay? People used to think, what are we going to do when Billy Graham dies? I guess what we'll do what the church has always done, continue to preach the gospel, you know, as best we can, with whoever God gives us that generation. But, uh, yeah, people come and go. But Jesus transcends. He's before uh, reality, but he's not, the, he's not the Father. He's a different person. The God the Father. In the beginning, the Word already was. He was with God the Father. And the Word was God. Now watch this. Most English translations say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And little kids will read that and thinking, well, that's saying Jesus is God the Father. That's not what it's saying. And the Greek syntax flushes this out. In the beginning, the Word already was. He is transcended outside time and space. He was with. He had fellowship with the Father, and the Spirit. He's not mentioned there, but he's mentioned later in this context. They're not lonely. They're not creating because they're lonely, Londa. They don't need you. They want you. In some ways, that's even better, if you think about it, right? In the beginning, the Word already was. The Word was with God the Father. They're perfectly content. They don't need us. It's just super grace that created us. And the Word was God in the sense that he was full deity. I would translate that in the beginning, the Word already was. The Word was with God the Father as the second person of the Trinity, relating to the first Trinity, first person of the Trinity. And the Word was full deity, had all has all the essence, all the attributes of God the Father, as does the Spirit. But is that a bombastic way to start? In other words, he was in the beginning with God because he'd always existed with God the Father. Drop down to verse 18. These are parallel. Adding on to that premise... Think about this, John's saying, and he's writing after the death and resurrection of Christ and saying, no one has seen God at any time. Well, I thought we saw Jesus. He's talking about God the Father there. No one has seen God the Father at any time. God's a spirit. You've got to worship in spirit and truth. But monogenes, only begotten is the Greek word monogenes. It doesn't mean only begotten. It means unique, only one of his kind. The only, the unique member of the Trinity who's now at the right hand of the Father. As John's writing this, Glenna, He's seen the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, 40 days later, the ascension of Christ. 
And he's writing out here in about 69 AD, and he's realizing where Jesus manifests his visible presence is at the right hand of the Father, right? So he's saying, no one has seen God the Father at any time, but if you want to know what God looks like, you look to Jesus. You want to know what God's like, you look to Jesus, right? And that right, Blanche? You don't look to Muhammad, the Buddha, or Joseph Smith, or anybody like that. And he's now at the right hand of the Father. He has demonstrated what God is. Okay, let's look at verse 3. And then we'll compare it to verse 17 because of our structure here. Jesus, the Word, and physical creation. Jesus, the Word, and special spiritual creation, being born again. All things, all time, space, matter, and energy came into being through Him. In other words, apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. One thing for sure, there's only four options for anybody. If the anything now exists, something or someone must be eternal outside of time, or else the cause of everything popped in existence out of nothing and by nothing. And that's kind of where certain people are now. If you have a big bang, you must have a big banger. If you have a beginning, you must have a beginner. Who's the beginner? Uh, and the universe looks like it has a beginning. In fact, I think physics has proven that. Guess who the beginner was? Jesus Christ. That's what the text is saying here. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing has come into being which has come into being. Drop down to verse 17. That's physical creation. Now, Jesus and spiritual creation. The law, the Old Testament law, was partial, preliminary, and given through Moses. But grace and truth in its ultimate form has been given in and through Jesus Christ. Go to the next slide there, David. Uh, think about it. There are 36,000 different Christian denominations. Okay? I would have done the higher lower on that, but it would have taken us like an hour, so we're not going to do that. 36,000. Okay? Round numbers. Okay? None of them sacrifice animals. Okay? If you put all the born-again folks in that center of that circle, and not all, everybody goes to church is born-again. But let's just assume most of them heard the gospel, believe the gospel. All colors, countries, cultures, denominations, generations. Okay? We've got 36,000 different denominations, and they disagree on things like exactly what is the symbolism of the Lord's Supper, how do you treat Sunday, how do you organize your church, you have elders and deacons, or you have a... Uh, more one elder and lots of deacons, or you have lots of elders and one deacon, or you have uh, how do you organize your church? All that kind of stuff. We disagree on all those peripheral things, but none of us sacrifice animals. Even those, there's the whole book of the Bible that tells you in detail how to sacrifice animals at a central sanctuary. What's the name of that book? Leviticus, right? So why, if this is the Christ event, his life, death, resurrection, the Old Testament folks are out here. They're sacrificing animals all day long in a temple tabernacle. Christ comes and suddenly, even though the 36,000 different denominations disagree on lots of different peripheral things, none of us are sacrificing animals anymore. How come? Because grace and peace and its fullness came through Jesus Christ. We get that part, okay? We disagree on other stuff, but it's like one big happy dysfunctional family, you know? You need to plug into a church somewhere, and guess what? Next week, probably Wednesday night this week, we start church shopping in Tulsa, okay? And I'm picky, so... uh but you know what? You find the best one you can and try to make it a little bit better. Right? You're not going to find a perfect one. You need the local church so you can learn how to love dysfunctional people like you. And everybody seems normal till you get to know them. So just remember that. Okay? But yeah, that's what we're saying here. Uh, all things came into being in the physical creation. Jesus is what Moses was all about. Remember on the road to Emmaus, uh, the resurrected Jesus appears to guys that are disappointed that Jesus was crucified. 
uh, and they don't recognize him at first. And he says, why are you so glum? Well, we thought the, this Jesus guy was the one Moses talked about, would be the Messiah, but the Romans have killed him. And then it says, Jesus, starting with Moses and all of the Old Testament scriptures, explained why the Christ is necessary for the Christ to die. He gives him the gospel of the Old Testament. Okay, let's keep going. We're going through the prologue to the gospel of John, thinking about the theology of Christmas. Look at verses 4 through 5. Jesus, the word, is the issue and the issuer of spiritual life and light. We're talking about God's grace to the human race here. And it parallels with verse 16. But let's look at verses 4 and 5. In him was Zoe, not bios. We have biological life. We have spiritual life. In him was Zoe, spiritual life. And then we use that, John uses that as a proper noun, as a title for Jesus now. The life, Jesus, was the light. That's a title. So he's the word. He's the life. He's the light. Trick question. You're already way ahead of me. So is this text saying Jesus was the word, or is it saying Jesus was the life, or is it saying Jesus was the light? Which one? All of them. That's the fallacy of the apparent paradox. You don't have to say, is Jesus son of God or son of man? He's both, right? He's not either the word or the life or the light. He's all of that stuff. It's like a multifaceted diamond. And listen, you're never going to get bored in heaven. This idea that you've just got ver- only vertical lines, everything's white, everything's quiet. It's like a really kind of really super fancy museum that you don't have to pay to get in. And uh, everybody's sitting on clouds playing harps. That's a terrible heretical view of heaven. Think of the most fascinating experiences you can have on earth and multiply that infinitively. And just interacting with Jesus all day as the second person of the ontological trinity, you're never going to get bored with him, ever. And scriptures, John tells you, I'm not telling you everything I could tell you about Jesus, and even if I did, I'd just be scratching the surface, Tom. Tom's got the capacity to really enjoy heaven. One reason we're down here is to help us enjoy heaven. One reason God let me go to Shreveport to Fellowship Bible Church for six and a half years, so I could appreciate Tanguid Bible Fellowship. <laughs> I think my worst day at Tanguid Bible Fellowship was probably better than my best day at Fellowship Bible Church. <laughs> I can say that now. You wouldn't have hired me if I'd said that before, right? <laughs> it's not too late to go back. Uh, but anyway. Yeah. So where are we? Uh, verse 4 and 5. In him was Zoe, spiritual life. And let's use that as a title for him now. The life, Jesus, was the light and still is the light of men. And the light keeps shining in the darkness of a world that wants you to believe anything about Jesus except that he's the exclusive issue of eternal life. You can believe lots of nice things about him. He's a well-intended community organizer. He's a great philosopher, great moral teacher. But when you say he's the way, the truth, and the life, those are fighting words. They don't want to hear that. Which is why... Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has overcome the world because the world wants you to believe anything except that he's it and you trust him alone for salvation. So this is really interesting. The Greek word translated uh, grasp in verse 5, the light, even though the Romans killed him, God raised him from the dead and uh, he's still shining despite that uh, that event, he, he wasn't, uh, he's not dead and buried, he's been resurrected. The light keeps on shining after his resurrection now, and the darkness did not grasp him. That word can be, tra- it means to grasp in a couple of different ways. It can mean to grasp, to overpower someone, like a wrestler might do. You know, in a wrestling match, you grasp your opponent and you pin them. So you could use that same Greek word for that, but it can also mean to, Andy, to grasp with your mind. When you grasp a concept in your mind, 
You know, Andy's got the most exciting uh, job in the hospital. And people, it's kind of like my job in a way, because you make people go to sleep, and I've been doing that for 31 years here. <laughs> but the most, the most exciting part, part of the operation for, for Andy, and he does this all day long every day, and you're probably on call right now, right? No, you're not? Good. He's actually concentrating that, is getting him to wake up. That's the exciting part, right? Yeah, but I was going to make a point about that. Oh, I know what it is. <laughs> Grasp with the mind, okay? He had to learn a you got to get a lot of schooling to do what Homer used to do and what Andy still does, right? And it's a good thing you're married to, like, the smartest, most organized person in the world, man. So that's probably helped you along the way. But, yeah, it can mean to grasp with the mind, to really comprehend something. Now, John, as a writer, likes to use something called double entendre. Well, he purposely uses a word that has two possible meanings, and he means both at the same time. Is it true that... The world didn't grasp and defeat Jesus. Yeah, they crucified him. He's permitting that to happen for redemptive purposes. If you want to go to heaven, it's a nice thing he made your atonement for you, right? But that wasn't a victory for the world against him. That was the ultimate success story because of the resurrection. Now, the reason the resurrection is so important is, Dr. Buchanan, it validates the saving virtue of Christ's death. Michelle, if he's just still dead, he's just like, Muhammad or Joseph Smith or the Buddha, they're all dead, right? So the world didn't grasp it in that sense. I'm not picking on you today, Tommy. You notice that? Like last week? Yeah. Um, I spread it around. Yeah. The world did not defeat him, and the world didn't understand him either. Okay? They actually thought they were doing the right thing by killing him. You know, both the Romans and the Jews. The Jews did not crucify Jesus. The Romans did. The Jewish leaders set him up to be crucified. But uh, well, you can't hate the Jews on that. That's, just, that's ridiculous. Okay? Drop down to the parallel passage, which is what? Verse 16. Through Jesus as the issuer of eternal life, when, when they grasp him to crucify him, that's actually the whole centerpiece of the gospel. Through Jesus, the word we have all, and that's the believers of the world, have received his fullness, grace upon grace. Now look at this. Look at verses 6 through 8. Even as a young kid, when I'd read this portion of John after I got a paraphrase from the grocery store, I told you that story many times, some of you have heard it. Yeah, I'd read this part, and I wasn't sure exactly who the word was. I thought it was talking about the Bible has always been around, because the word of God is the Bible, right? And it is. But I always noticed, he talks about John the Baptist here in these first couple of verses, first 18 verses, in verse 6 and 8. And then he stops talking about John the Baptist, but he comes back to him in verse 15. I always thought that was weird. And now I know why, because of this parallel, this climbing the staircase and coming back down. Uh, John the Baptist was this Jewish prophet predicted who would be just before the Messiah, so the Jewish nation could be ready to receive the Messiah. There came a man, he's just a man, he's not before the beginning, he's not anything like Christ, he's just a human being, but an important one, sent from God as a prophet whose name was John. Now John wasn't a Baptist, Glenna, he was a Jewish prophet, okay? He wasn't a Baptist. But he was a baptizing Jewish prophet who baptized. So he's called Jewish, the baptizing Jewish prophet, uh, John. He came as a witness to testify about the light. Who's the light? Jesus is the light, the life, the word. All these titles apply to him. So that all who hear might believe. And 90 times, this is number one, this, God, this word, which means active receptive trust, not just mental assent, uh, is used as the terms of salvation. 
All might believe through him. Everybody he talked to might receive through his testimony about Jesus. He, John the Baptist, was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Think of John the Baptist, John, as the moon. Jesus is the sun. The moon is just a dead rock. But did you see the moon last night, especially near the horizon? Was it awesome? Were you howling at it? Yeah, it's an awesome moon. When it's, when it's near the horizon, you can't believe how big it looks, you know? But there's no light coming off the moon. That's just the sunlight bouncing off of it. It's dead. Good analogy, isn't it? Drop down to the parallel passage, verse 15, Michael. John the Baptist testified about Jesus. He picks it up again because we're coming to the uh, symmetrical part of the staircase. John the Baptist testified about Jesus. All I've done to try to do for 31 years is teach you the Bible so you know what it means in context and how it relates to your life. Get somebody else to do that. You know, you'll be fine. No problem. Uh, people who can do that are a dime a dozen. Uh, I mean, really, there's, there's a lot of us out there. Uh, I'm not the only one who hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. You know what I mean? 7,000 of us. John the Baptist testified about Jesus. It wasn't about John. It was about Jesus. The Word, and he said, this is he of whom I said he who comes after me, has a higher rank than me, even though I was before him, you'd think I'd have seniority, but in fact, he's preexistent. He's the Son of God, uh, Savior of the world. Uh, that was a slide, and I think I've got another one talking about the Old Testament relation to the New Testament, but we're not going to emphasize that for lack of time. Let me just stop right there, though. You know, the, the Old Testament law was never a ladder that anybody could use to climb to God, but it revealed our need for a Savior. Uh, Romans says, uh, but, but by the law, no one will be made righteous in God's sight, but through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the, the Old Testament law was never designed to save anybody in the Old Testament. People in the Old Testament were saved by faith in the promised Savior. And on this side, we're saved by faith in the provided Savior. That's all that's going on there. Next slide. Yeah, now we're in the very heart of this structure. And this is what this whole passage is building up to. Uh, verses 12 through 13 is the epicenter, but the passage just before and after that really is the setting of the diamond ring, you might say. So let's read all this together. Verse 9 through 11, Jesus, the Word, is the is the incarnation of God in human form. There's nobody else anywhere near that. Jesus was and is the true light, who coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world. He existed before time, space, matter, and energy. The world had been made through him, yet the world, by and large, doesn't know him, doesn't grasp him, and by and large, most people will say anything about him except that he's the Christ, the Savior, the issue of eternal life. He came into his own, specifically the folks who had the Old Testament scriptures, who many of whom were looking, but the vast majority didn't care. Uh, and those who were his own, by and large, with some exceptions, did not receive him. Then the very epicenter of this passage. But as many as receive him, to each individual who does, and you get saved one person at a time. Cooper wasn't saved because his mom and dad are born again Christians. Cooper was saved when he trusted Jesus Christ alone for salvation, right? God doesn't have any grandchildren. All he's got is children. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to be children of God to those who believe. And again, we're seeing believing 90 times. Pistuo, which means active receptive trust. Uh, full consent of the will. These are born not of blood, not physically, but of, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. They're born again, born from above, as Jesus goes into great detail in, in, in John chapter 3. And then the parallel of uh, verses 9 and 11 is found in verse 14. The Word is the incarnation of God in human form. This is so powerful in the original. Jesus, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us, Michael, as a very fuzzy D minus translation. It's the word tabernacled. 
The tabernacle was the portable central sanctuary the Old Testament folks constructed, I was going to say destructed, constructed at the end of Exodus, in which the glory of God resided. God man, visibly manifested himself in the tabernacle. When you go from a portable building to a physical building that's in place in Jerusalem, what do you call it? Not the tabernacle, but the temple. Yeah, that's what that's about. And that's the word there. It's from skene, which for tabernacle. And so this is saying that the word became flesh and tabernacled. He was in human form. He had deity in him. All the de- fullness of deity in him dwells in bodily form. And, and John says, we saw his glory. Now, a lot of people say, well, that means transfiguration. Because the transfiguration, there were only three disciples at the transfiguration, right? And Moses and Elijah show up too. And Jesus unveils his glory. What three disciples were at the transfiguration? Peter, James, and John, right? And I'm sure John's thinking of that, but I think he's thinking much broader than that. We saw his perfect life for three years on the ground. We saw his death. We saw his, re- we saw his burial. We saw his resurrection. We saw his ascension. We saw him ascend up in, in the, in back to heaven visibly. So he's saying, hey, the word became flesh, tabernacle among us. We saw, this, we are eyewitnesses. We, this really happened. We're not making this up. This isn't fables. We saw his glory, his uniqueness, his full deity as of the unique member of the Trinity in his visible human form, full of grace and truth. What an incredible passage. I mean, you can't hardly do it justice, but we've tried just to kind of skim the surface. And by showing you kind of where the parallels are, maybe that helps a little bit. Uh, next uh, slide, please. So we're talking about the theology of Christmas. And this is my this simple line diagram is trying to show that when we, re- we read uh, the Word, title for Jesus, the second person of Trinity, became flesh, took on humanity, and tabernacle among us. He looked like that. He didn't really look like that, but from a theology point of view. He's the eternal second person of Trinity. This is an early, late first century, early second century diagram trying to show you in two dimensions what the Trinity is, which is hard to do. There's one God... And the Father is fully God. He's true, triune, transcendent, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, just, righteous, sovereign, loving, immutable, veracity, eternal. He's all those attributes, but the Father is not the same person as the Son, nor the same person as the Holy Spirit. The Son, Jesus, the Word, the life, the light, is God. He has all the same attributes of God, including eternity, transcendence, but he's a separate person. He's not the Father, nor the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's not an it. It is a he, it's a person. A person in theology means has mind, will, and emotion. Electricity isn't personal. Gravity, is gravity real? Yeah, it's very real, but it's not personal. You can't insult gravity. You can't hurt the feelings of electricity, but you can hurt my feelings. No, I'm <laughs> uh, Jeff Tidwell, the, the world's greatest veterinarian, if you don't believe it, just ask him, he'll tell you about uh uh, he used to talk about some people that own pets, not any of you, are really weird. And he, he, he says the thing that kills him was when patients would come in, and it was obviously they're obsessed with their animals, and they would say stuff like, people have hurt, many people have hurt me, but animals have never hurt me. And he always thought, you ought to have my job. I've had, you know, I've had a horse step right into my face. I've, I've had a lot of animals hurt me. So, uh, you know what? If God didn't want us to eat animals, he would not have made them out of meat. That's my opinion. But not, you don't have to eat them. But that's, that's just the way I'm looking at it, okay? Uh, yeah, but this is an attempt to show you 
how important these statements in John 1 are about the theology. This is actually saying, not everybody can believe this. This is hard to believe. It's so easy to believe. It's not easy to believe if you understand what we're saying here, folks. It's unbelievable, right? So we've got to get a lot of help from God so we can do this thing. But we're saying the second person of the ontological uh, transcendent trinity, who was the physical agent of creation of time, space, matter, and energy, took on humanity without ceasing to be deity, but he veiled his glory and he gave up the independent use of his divine attributes. So he's submitting to the Holy Spirit's direction to decide when he can use some of those. And he's not the sender, he's the sendee. Okay? A doctor can send a nurse to go get some supplies, but a nurse, I don't know if they've told you this yet, but a nurse cannot send a doctor. Right? Because the sendee has an inferior, a lower, a subordinate role. Right? Subordinate clauses. Right? Jesus willingly accepted a subordinate role as the active member of the uh, plan of salvation, of the Trinity in that plan of salvation, which is why he's unique, Joe, because the Holy Spirit didn't do that, nor did the Father. Next slide. We're almost done. You know, it's, it's great. As a teacher at Cameron for 16 years, as a preacher here for 31 years, Dana, all my messages have and teaching sessions at Cameron have happy endings because everybody's happy when I end them. It's a guarantee. Uh, you know what? Um, go, to the, go to another slide. I'm not. Yeah, that's the one I want to look at. Almost done. And when we say Jesus is the active agent of salvation, look at this. All three members of the Trinity are, have done and will do a lot to save somebody as mangy and mean as Sharon Bearden. And when he has to say, when he had to save, and when he not had to say, but when he saved David, that was really heavy lifting. I mean, God had to be super omnipotent to save him because he was pretty a wild and crazy guy. But God the Father is the author of the plan. God loved the world. That's God the Father that he gave his son. The son says, I'm not coming to do my will. I'm coming to do the Father's will. You know? He said, I'm submitting to the plan, which involves crucifixion, right? And then the Holy Spirit's the activating agent. He convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, we got it, and you can't blame everybody else for all of it. Righteousness, we need it, can't crank it out. Judgment, it's coming, right? How can you need a Savior if you're not convicted about those things, right? And then he opens our heart to see and believe. So all three members of the Holy Trinity involved in this. Go back a slide, I think, David. Yeah, so let's end here. This is the theology of Christmas crystallized. Jesus Christ is the unique person of all reality, the God-man Savior, the active agent of salvation, the exclusive issue. So here's our invitation. We're not going to sing just as I am 17 times. We're not going to have you sign a card, walk an aisle, make us any promises. But go two slides. Here's the gospel, and I like acronyms, so I've used this before. Yeah, that looked familiar, Israel people? Isn't that a great picture? God's offer of salvation providing eternal life. This is our invitation to you. The scripture says, for by grace, what's grace? Unmerited favor. You can't earn it. You can't unearn it. You can't undeserve it. For by grace are you saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works. Lest any man should boast. Okay? Salvation is God coming down and doing the work for us. World religion is us reaching up trying to impress God or gods or however you define them. That's the big difference. Somebody asked a famous evangelical at some big symposium, what's the main difference between Christianity and all the other world religions? And he said, well, there's a lot of differences, but the main one is Christianity is true. <laughs> because Christ is true. And Christ is this unique, unbelievably incredible being, and a lot of people just can't or won't believe it, right? Um, 
Yeah, I think the, the Bible can be something, but John 3.16, we did that last week. I like the Roman road. Uh, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned. It's hard for me to believe Lana could ever sin, but Tommy has convinced me you probably can. So, all have sinned, and uh, not really, but uh, if I started following you on Tuesdays, I, I bet I could find out, right? All have sinned, come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, which is eternal separation from God in a place of punishment. But the verse doesn't stop there. What? What's the rest of the verse? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift, and this effort that is intensive in Greek, Savannah, the free gift is free, right? Nobody's so bad they can't have this. Nobody's so good they don't need it. Free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, what Christ do about it? He died for us. He died to pay for our sin debt. And at the end of the crucifixion, he says, Tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full, right? Now, if he's still dead, our faith doesn't work, as Paul says. But if he's the only one been resurrected, that validates his power over life and death and the saving virtue of his death. And now, what must I do to be saved? When Paul was asked that, what did he say? Join the Baptist church, walk an aisle, sign a car, stop smoking. No, he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Romans, talk about Romans, Romans 4, 5 says, but to the one who does not work. But believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Who's the one who justifies the ungodly? That'd be Jesus who paid for your sins. That person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. That's the gospel. Nothing else, nothing more, nothing less. It's all about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, my exhortation to all of you who are believers. Next slide. My final exhortation. Next slide. Um, that's not my... Go to the next slide. No. Move back one. My final expectation is, yeah, let's let's make Christ the core of our Christmas celebration. And I want to think about it this way. Christmas isn't about ho, ho, ho. It's about him, 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 right? Christmas isn't about Santa. It's about the Savior, right? And uh, that's all I got to say. I said a word of prayer. Father, as we approach and celebrate Christmas 2019, I pray that uh, you would enable us to really focus on Christ, regardless of what our family traditions are and what the crazy things and the eggnog and the wassail and all the good stuff we enjoy. And it's a lot of fun, and for some people it's a lot of stress. For some people it's very traumatic because they've suffered grievous losses at this time of year or just not having a loved one. And I know for the K-Rob's family, the, the wound is extremely fresh. This is going to be a very bittersweet Christmas. But if we'll let Christ, the resurrected Christ, be the focus of it, we can put all that stuff in a frame, all that stuff in perspective, and you'll enable us to do that. So I pray we can focus on the crucified, risen Christ at the centerpiece of our thoughts and heart as we celebrate Christmas this year, and that you be glorified by that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.